Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off the Beat and Track podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. And today's episode, well, this is uh, this is quite special. I'm joined by Andy McCluskey of Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, and you're in for a treat. Um, we have a wonderful, wonderful chat, and uh, and it's just so insightful into the career of uh, an incredible musician uh, and and a, and a kind of peek behind the curtain of the industry as well. Um, there's 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 some real Really insightful stuff on this uh, episode, and we'll, we'll get to it in a sec. Just quickly, um, a big thank you um, to Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network, and thank you to 76 for producing this podcast. Um, and if this is your first time listening to Off the Beaten Track, then um, once you've finished listening to this episode uh, with Andy, then um, why not have a look in the, the archives? Because um, you'll get an opportunity to see some, you know, to, to listen to some amazing interviews with some of your favorite musicians and actors and comedians and DJs, producers, etc. You know, artists as diverse as, oh gosh, um, Melanie C to Chuck D uh, to Fatboy Slim, through to James Lavelle, through to Sheik, through to Swade. There's, there's, there's an abundance of, um, of great chats to be had. So go and have a rummage around in the archives when you finish listening to this one and, and, and best still just subscribe. And then each week, you'll get a new episode, just pop up on your listening device. If you really want um, a lot more extra content uh, and you'd like to support the podcast, I do have a Patreon page that accompanies this, and I put up four radio shows each week and, uh, and some unique episodes and some video episodes. Um, and you can find out about all of the uh, aforementioned stuff at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. That's beat and not beaten. Okay, let's get back to business. You're in for a treat. Please enjoy Off the Beat and Track podcast with Andy McCluskey of OMD. Listen up. I've only got another new sponsor, Egg Fried. It's this super cool clothing label. And if you're into sort of skating and street art and gigging and, and kind of like really cool art and throwing a little bit of Asian culture and, and the designer's kind of weird sense of humour in the mix, then you're pretty much there with the wonderful world that is eggfried.com. Now, 
They do these amazing punchy kind of graphic tees, hoodies and sweatshirts, beautiful art prints, as well as this, they have a denim range, all handmade in-house, all supporting the slow fashion movement. Not only that, they've given you a discount code, 10% off when you head over to eggfried.com. Just use the code EGGSALAD, E-W-G-S-A-L-A-D, save 10%. Go and get lost in the world of egg fried. Also, they've got a new kids range, and it's called Small Fried, and it's super cool, super cute. Um, and again, it's all over there in this wonderful world. Go and get involved at eggfried.com. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with him. Okay, we're recording. Joining me today is Andy McCluskey. Hello. Hi there, how are you doing? Uh, very, very well, thank you. Um, we've, 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 we've briefly spoke uh, before our press record, so um, to ask you how you're doing, um, I'm already aware that you're, you're, you're recovering from COVID. Um, sounds very unpleasant. Um, feeling a lot better now? I am, thank you. Yes, I had it, uh, came down with the first symptoms about four weeks ago. I think I've been one of the lucky ones. Seems like everybody manifests different symptoms. Um, about 36 hours of feeling like very strong flu, but then really just aches and tiredness for the last three weeks. I'm finally feeling okay again. So fingers crossed that I'm, I'm, I'm through the worst of it, but you know, everybody seems to be different and I sadly have actually lost a good friend two weeks ago. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think one of the things that, that that people have started to, you know, look towards in in in, uh, in in this very very bizarre year, Andy, is it's kind of I, I think uh, you know pleasant distractions, and 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 I think that you know music's definitely become one of those uh, in in lockdown where I think people are just kind of looking for you know if if you're stuck indoors and you can't get out, you've got to find your comforts where you can. So. You know, I, I think it'll be podcasts as well, actually. Um, but, you know, it does feel that people are leaning towards, you know, well, certainly I am, like music to uh, to kind of sort of distract me from the, you know, watching the news and, and, and the stuff that's going on outside my window, which isn't particularly pleasant. No, I, th- I, th- I think you're right. It's, uh, it, it, I mean, it's been a very strange time. Obviously, we're all particularly missing the live music and, and and this whole business of like you know doing onlines or socially distanced gigs i don't want that to be the new normal i want to go back to the old normal 100%. please but um but i think also um you know i found that the one thing that i have rediscovered is that is is that the the creative power of boredom because i've had nothing else to do for seven months <laughs> there will be a new omd album because i've been writing <laughs> <laughs> wonderful I mean, I mean i do think that you know all, all of the kind of things that have been going on has kind of almost stripped you back to having to do that whole kind of punk diy thing and rethink you know what you can do with what limitations you know that, that are you know at your disposal do you know what i'm saying yeah no that there, def- there definitely is an element of that i mean it, it's it's a complete rethink okay right Let's start talking about records. For track one, Andy, um, can you tell me the song with the greatest ever intro? Yeah, I mean, I think that I would probably go for a Roxy Music track, actually. Wonderful. Um, 
I didn't get into Roxy Music actually until about 1975 when my good friend John Floyd got me into them. And then I sort of started to catch up and go back to the early albums. I remember them on Old Grey Whistle Test and it was one of those moments, a bit like David Bowie with Starman when you went, what the heck is that? Um, so I think my favourite song's intro is the intro to Pajama Rama by Roxy Music. Wonderful. The power, the power chords and the sustained note all the way through. I love that intro. I could hear that just all the way through the song. Forget the rest of it. <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm very interested to ask you this question because it's a question that I ask um, all musicians that, 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 that come on this podcast and, and tries on my I've never quite managed to get the question right, but, um, but bear with me, Andy. So... I'm very interested in, in into how you approach um, songwriting now and and the intro and the emphasis on that intro and how that's changed from the you know the the, the early years of OMD through to you know writing for other people uh, and and to currently writing the, the new OMD album. Um, um, the, the 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 things I'm sort of trying to kind of sort of base this around is is the way that people listen to music now it, it, it appears that you know there's 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 no fat allowed on the bone anymore it's like you know trim down start with a chorus you know i'm, I'm talking predominantly pop music here i think andy but um but yeah just you know in, in the world where everybody's sort of streaming via spotify and there's constant distraction saying you might like this you might like this i just wondered how you approach songwriting now you know and how it's mm. changed from how you initially did and, and what considerations you have now um, when you approach writing a record. Do you get where I'm going with this question, Andy? <laughs> I totally do. I totally do, yeah. Um, I think, I'll be honest with you, I think my songwriting, uh, the way I approach songwriting, hasn't changed, but I've been very fortunate that um, from a very early age, when I started writing songs with Paul Humphreys, that we developed a style which seemed to once we'd got past our friends thinking it was bloody awful before we actually got proper instruments and we could play <laughs> tunes, um, we, we've, we've never really done anything to try to consciously adapt our songwriting to, to what was required. We've been quite fortunate that we've kind of followed our own course and it's been accepted. But I tell you what, one thing has happened. I mean, well, a couple of things. Certainly, the way people consume music is completely different now. And yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, streaming has has totally changed everything. It was it was strange when you when you got to to just downloading, and I think that's when everything changed. That music just became a file. Music was no longer a, a, a vinyl album or a CD. Most people consume their music as a, as a digital file. And I think once it just became an icon on your screen or something you tapped on your phone, it didn't seem to have the perceived value that it used to have when you actually had a physical object that you had to put into something and play it back. So I think that the value of music has changed in the digital age. Obviously now streaming, I mean, First time in my life, three years ago, I started to earn more money from live than I did from owning my intellectual property rights. And one wow. of the biggest, yeah, one of the biggest frustrations for us is when the band reformed, and we've done three albums now since we reformed, and um, you know we know that they're not going to sell the numbers they used to. That's fine, we accept that. But um, it has certainly kind of contemporized the impression of the band with people. For every time we want to take a single to Radio 2, which would be the natural home for OMD, you know, they play lots of OMD. They have a rule now where 
the vocal has to start within 18 seconds. Really? And you, yeah, you have to butcher your track, otherwise they won't play it. And, you know, we, we've tried saying to them at, at programming meetings, you know, so Enola Gay, it doesn't start, the, I don't start singing the verse until, you know, 25, 30 seconds because the melody is the chorus. The same with Souvenir, yeah. the same with Maid of Orléans. It's like we used to have a melody as a chorus and they are so focused on the lead singer is the most important element that, yeah, literally, if you don't start singing in 18 seconds, you're not going to get playlisted, which to me is ridiculous. That's, that's, that's crackers. What... One of the things I do want to ask as well is just touching on what you just said there is when, when something becomes a file and, uh, and the way that, you know, people are consuming music differently now. And, and we, you know, we live in an age where I think, you know, a lot of people are just going onto iTunes and cherry picking tracks. Mm-hmm. When you put together an OMD album, do you still put that album together as a piece of art, as a, as a, as a you know, as an album in its entirety? Yes, uh, but again, I think we're I think we're unusual in that respect. Uh, that we've we've always done that. We and we we would never sit down and say, right, today we're going to write one of the singles from the album, and tomorrow <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to write a B side, and then on Friday we're going to write an album track. Um, we just did what the hell we felt like doing, yeah. and hoped that so, one of those ten tracks would be a single that we could release, um, which I think was important because. I think if you sit down and try to write a single, very often you you know you you, you try to you try to analyse the rules and you come up with something really boring and conventional. So I think actually it's it's better to um, to you know to, to 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 not try and follow the rules. But what has absolutely happened it, it, since the digital age is exactly you know you don't have to buy the whole album now. And you can skip through it and go, I like that one, I like that one, I like that one, and I'm not going to buy the rest of the album. And I think that really affected the pop market because what I what I found, you know, I, I worked with Atomic Kitten, I created the Atomic Kitten as a vehicle for my own songs. And what I discovered talking to the 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 songwriters who who delivered material for the manufactured pop groups was they knew that they had a hit. And when the record company came to them, they'd go, okay, yeah, we want that song. And they go, okay, well, you can have that song, but you've also got to take two or three songs out of the bottom drawer. And the artist and the management and the record company go, well, we'll take those if you give us a cut of the publishing or something. So there was all this horse trading going on. So you would get three or four great top draw songs, but in the process of those going on the album, and they'd be the first three tracks on the album, you got the not very good songs that were all part of the deal. And that, so that's why pop albums started to not sell as many as they did, because the first three songs were great and the rest really weren't. And so people just downloaded the first three songs. So exactly what you say, people just cherry pick the good stuff and people stopped buying albums uh, for a while, I, th- I think I think artists have got savvy now that they can't, you know, they they, they can't fill it up with junk because it won't be bought because people will cherry pick. That's fascinating. I did not know that. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, oh yeah, I mean I, I believe me, I learned some very sanguine lessons at the time <laughs> about uh, some of the dodgy deals that go on in manufactured pop. Okay, I'm going to take you back, um, Andy, for track two, the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. This one's really easy. Um, It's the Harry Nielsen version of the song Without You. Okay. Um, It starts melancholy, and the lyrics are beautiful, and it's a simple piano refrain. But when he shifts up the octave and his voice starts to soar and tremble, it invariably gets the hairs on the back of my neck up. It is so painful. You can hear the pain and the angst in the voice, and he just delivers the emotion so powerfully. And I love that song. And I think I was 12. I was a 12-year-old boy, and that song tore me apart. So I was an emotional little child, obviously. Um, yeah, and that that song, and his version, his version, the original version by the guys who wrote it isn't as good. I don't like the Mariah Carey version because it was overproduced and she oversang it. Mm-hmm. The Nielsen version is the one that tears my heart out every time. As you were describing it uh, just then, Andy, I'm, I'm not lying, I've got goosebumps just thinking about that song because it is, there's something in his voice and it does soar, but it's, there's a fragility in it as well that, that I just think he's, oh, it's, there's something wonderful about that record. And uh, I mean, what, as a 12-year-old lad, what emotion would you say that, you know, you experience from, from hearing that? Do you know, I, I can't say that I, I don't think I would have been in love with anybody other than my parents, you know, but I wasn't that kind of like, you know, amour. Um, so I couldn't have really identified with the, 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 the end of a romantic love, but just the arrangement of that song and Nielsen's voice, just even to somebody who'd never experienced romantic love, conveyed the sheer 
pain and angst of the death it, it, of, 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 of love. It, it starts with, a, you know, resignation, you know, the, and the way, you know, the way you were leaving and, and just, I guess that's just the way the story goes. It's very resigned, but then he's, then he shifts up to Kelly and it's just, he's howling. Yeah. He's howling with pain. And whether you've felt that yourself or not, you can hear it in the music and the singing. Wonderful. So where would you have been when, when, when you heard that? Where, where was you born and where did you grow up, Andy? Um, grew up on the Wirral Peninsula on the other side of the river from Liverpool and then the other side of the river D from North Wales. We're kind of schizophrenic peninsula. We've got big city on one side and leafy North Wales on the other. Um, and I would have heard that probably on the radio or on top of the pops, uh, in 1971 when it was released. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to get this question in now because um, I normally kind of, if if it um, if the word top of the pops rears its head, I, I generally like to um, to ask guests about it because it's you know it's woven into the fabric of our, our pop culture in you know in the UK, and and I just want to know like you know if, you know if you're watching the, the the pop stars that you know that that were key to the formative years and 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 so on, how was it? Um, Andy, to finally get on top of the pops and perform, like how, you know, did that did that deliver what you thought it was going to be? From somebody like we all did, would watch it religiously and like to actually mm-hmm. find yourself, you know, getting the thumbs up that you're going on top of the pops. How, how was that moment? And and you know, how was the actual experience of doing it? Well, quite honestly, the answer is yes and no. Um, <laughs> you know, we, 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 we hadn't done a lot of television up to that point. Um, you know, it was our third single that, uh, that, that got us onto Top of the Pops. And for us, it was, it was a bizarre experience. We had just finished uh, the European leg of our tour. This was the, the third single from our first album, Messages. And we were just leaving to go home to get the ferry um the equipment was all in the truck we were in a bus or a van really and somebody came running out of the hotel after us and we thought i hope somebody hasn't paid the pill floor you know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway he stopped us and he said telephone telephone call important telephone call and um our tour manager went in and and said oh my god we've been off the top of the pops we've got to get home quickly and so instead of taking the van home we um we had to fly so it was the first time in my life I'd flown in an aeroplane, uh, flew into Heathrow, zoomed down to um, a little recording studio, because in those days the Musicians' Union insisted that the, if you played on Top of the Pops, you had to re-record your song, and they gave you three hours to do it, which was, of course, a total nonsense. But they wanted to make sure that, A, either you could play it because you had played it, or B, if you had used session musicians, they were going to get another fee to be paid to you. So you went through this charade of doing the best you could, and we ha- we didn't even have our own instruments, which which for me meant that I had a, a borrow a, a rented bass guitar with the strings the right way up, and I play with them the wrong way up, so I couldn't really play the bloody thing properly. <laughs> uh, so we did this charade. Fortunately, the guy allowed us to use the tape that we'd faked because they always used to slide in the original master when they were doing the mixing. <laughs> um, so we did mime to the original track and, um, and then, yeah, we, we went off down to the, the, the top of the pop studio and um, it was, 
hugely underwhelming. Um, (laughs) The stage that looked so big and glamorous and glittery on the TV screen um, was tiny. It had just been painted, so it was sticky, and it seemed to be held together with gaffer tape. And, uh, you know... we did. We, you're there all day. It's the most boring day in the world because you're there all day long. You have to do the, your run through, then you do the general rehearsal, then you do the, the main gig. And of course, it is true. You, you, you find yourself being distracted because you're trying to do your best to camera and you've got the floor managers pushing the audience around and the, the, the boom cameras flying in and, you know, the thing, the, 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 the trolleys, just, you try, you're being distracted by these poor sheep in the crowd being pushed around and you're trying to give it your best so the whole experience was just i mean you dreamt of being on top of the pops but when you went and did it it was poxy (laughs) (laughs) can you remember 20 million people watched you (laughs) the next day can you remember who else was on with you on the first one oh gosh i honestly can't um (laughs) I do, I do remember that um, one of the things that we did like in the early days was because, you know, a lot of our early hits were quite unusual for the time. I mean, it was great that they were hits, but they, they, they didn't sound like anything else. And, and it was great thinking, you know, something like Made of Orleon, which starts with 30 seconds of distortion before the drums even come in. I remember standing there thinking, wait till they hear this. This will make them spit their tea out. Um, and, 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 you know, and it was like, it'd be Elton John or Cliff Richard or Lena Zavaroni. The BBC orchestra used to be in the, in the studio every week playing with somebody. So we really felt like we were being quite radical and yeah. challenging compared to a lot of the other stuff that was still on there. So it was, in that respect, we did feel like, you know, rebels with a cause. Yeah. Okay. Um, track three. The song that reminds you of your time at school, please, Andy. Yeah. My mum had a pretty cool record collection actually in the sixties. So this is this is when I was this is when I was like a junior school. She had some great songs. She had lots of Beatles songs, lots of Kinks songs. Um and of course, when you're a kid and you've just got an old mono dance set and you you know, used to stack all the seven inches up. I had no idea what was the A side or the B side. I yeah. just liked them all. You know, they, they were the songs I just played over and over again. And my favorite Beatles song when I was a kid actually was the B side. Um, and it's a song called Thank You Girl. And I think it's the B side of their first number one in 63. Now, but, but what, was, what was the number one? Um, she Loves You. I think it's She Loves You, yes. I think it was She Loves You or I Want to Hold Your Hand. I think it's She Loves You. So nobody knows this Beatles song. Yeah, it was I, I don't know. Uh, yes, I had a little girl, only a fool would doubt our love. And all I want to do is thank you, girl. Thank you, girl. Thank you, girl, for loving me the way that you do. And I, so, I mean, it's ingrained in my head, you know. So that song is indelibly printed in my musical memory. Wonderful. How did you find school, Andy? Um, I was lucky that I was quite good at sport. Uh, I wasn't terribly academic. Um, my biggest issue was uh, because I was very anxious and very worrisome when I was a kid, I had asthma and I had eczema and I used to scratch myself to ribbons at night to the point where, you know, I'd wake up and I'd be stuck to the sheets. I'd actually have to rip the sheets off my skin. 
Um, so I used to, I used to walk to school like a little robot with torn backs of my knees and ripped ankles and used to hurt like hell, especially in the cold, stingy winter air. So I felt very, very self-conscious. And, you know, kids are great, aren't they? They'll pick on any weakness you've got. So oh, it used to be like, you know, oh, we don't want to play chain tick with you. You've got lizard skin. So, <laughs> so, so school, yeah, school was a mixed bag for me. You know, some things I liked and other things. Uh, one thing that I will tell you, though, is Paul Humphreys went to the same school as me, but he was in the year below. And we were both in the recorder group. And both of us would rather go and play footy in Mel's Park rather than learn how to play the recorder and it's only years later we were discussing this that we both found out that we use the same technique which probably came useful for top of the pops we would sit on a table with the girls who all knew how to play and we would mime (laughs) (laughs) wonderful until until after a couple of years we both got found out and turfed out of the recorder group but we both did the same thing we just sit there putting it to our lips and miming. <laughs> oh incredible I'm, I'm i'm loving the fact that omd's first performance was miming to three blind mice with uh <laughs> and letting the girls do all the work yeah <laughs> oh wonderful um i mean did you have any idea what you wanted to do when you was at school Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, my dad had been um, a semi-professional football player, and he was brilliant, really skillful. So I wanted to be a football player, but it became patently obvious to me by the age of seven that I would never be in anything but a kind of clod hopping at hoof it to row Z centre-half. <laughs> um, so I gave up on that. Then I wanted to be an archaeologist. Okay. Uh, but my, 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 my careers teacher at the sixth form took great delight in saying to me, oh, you want to do archaeology? Well, when you were in my class doing Latin in year two, you dropped it and you need a classical language to do archaeology degree. So uh, that's how old I am. They, they used to insist on actually having Greek or Latin if you wanted to do an archaeology course. Jeez. So that went by the by. Then I wanted to do art and I actually had a place to do a fine art degree at Leeds. I took a gap year. And that's when my hobby accidentally became my job for the next 42 years, which was Paul and I started Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark in 1978 to do one gig. So that's how it all started. So, yeah, I I went through quite a few different thoughts, but as do most kids, I guess. Leading up to that gap year, um, how how hard did um, punk hit you? We had already found our alternative music before punk came along. Um, we, uh, as, as a teenager, I, 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 once I got to a point where I wanted to define my own sense of self, and I think people used to very much do that. When, when we, in, the, in the old days where there was sort of a tribes and music seemed to be linear, that, you know, something would replace something else. This is new, sure. that's old. Um, the music you listened to, what you wore, and, and your hair was really how you kind of built your own sense of self. So from 15, 16 onwards, I wanted different music. And all I would listen to literally was a handful of things like Roxy Music, David Bowie, and then I discovered German music, Kraftwerk and Neu. I liked Velvet Underground. And everything else I really thought was crap. Uh, I had very limited palate. So Paul and I had already discovered our alternative in 75 before we heard punk. But obviously punk opened up a lot of doors. And the wonderful thing was it decentralized the music industry for about three or four years. And fortunately, 
two crazy guys from the wrong side of the river in Liverpool with the stupid name of their band playing songs that only the year before their best mates thought were crap, suddenly had an A&R man knocking on the door going, oh, yeah, we like your single, we want to sign you. So, yeah, it was, you know, punk, punk opened doors, but it wasn't really something that influenced us. Okay, okay. Track four. What was the first song you bought from a record shop, Andy? I think this is a this is a slight cheat because the first song, the first single I ever bought from a record store was "Without You." Oh, okay. I, wa- I walked from Mel's to Hoylake, about two miles, and I bought it in Woolworths. You know, forty percent of the singles in the UK were sold in Woolworths on a Saturday. That's so interesting you say that. I'm getting a lot of behind the scenes knowledge from you today, Andy. This is <laughs> this is glorious. Because so many people on this on this podcast well, I always ask, Where did you buy it? And I guess forty percent of their people always say Woolworths and it's like mm-hmm. and I just think like, where did people I I guess as Woolworths started to kind of disappear from the high streets would have been the evolution of the the mega stores, the HMVs, mm. and the, the Virgins, I suppose. But, um, yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. You, you're, you're right. I mean, obviously, that there's a whole other conversation here about the evolution of of, of record retail. <laughs> um, so, you know, I alluded to the fact that um, I, like many other people in what was it, '72, was sitting watching Top of the Pops, and Dave Lee Travis goes, "Get a load of this." And on comes David Bowie and Mick Ronson playing Starman. And that was like, you know, like the other 20 million people watching it, we all went, what the hell is that? And I was one of the ones who went, and it's great. Yeah. You know, a lot, a lot of grannies and your mums were going, good Lord, what are they dressed in? <laughs> um, but, yeah, so so I had to go out and buy the um, Ziggy Stardust um, album. And so Starman made me buy that album. And that, that was the first album I'd ever bought that was by an individual artist. Prior to that, I used to buy those Top of the Pops compilations, which I didn't realise were actually cover versions. They weren't the original hits. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption, it's just a super quick advert. The Signal is a platform for podcasters to launch a fully featured app onto the App Store and Google Play in just a matter of days. It allows you to monetize your podcast with in-app subscriptions and offer in exchange a whole world of features for your listeners, like exclusive episodes, ad-free versions of episodes, YouTube live streams, downloads, and much, much more. The Signal allows you to pull all your best content into one place that you control. No more trying to play the algorithm. Just connect directly with your audience and give them more of what they love. For just a small monthly cost and no contracts, you get your app into stores in days, not months. No big upfront development costs, no waiting months for beta versions, just all your content under your control. And even better, if you tell them Stu sent you, they will waive the £100 setup fee. So go to thesignal.app and take your podcast to the next level. Back to my podcast. Them, them albums don't go away. I, I like to kind of stick my head in a charity shop, and if there's vinyl, have a little leaf through and see what's there. And there's always some scantily clad sort of woman in a bikini uh, on, mm-hmm. on the cover of one of them Top of the Pops covers albums. They're, they won't go away. <laughs> 
Well, obviously, I mean, I, I, we won't judge the reason why you're buying those old nostalgic <laughs> records, too, but, uh, you know, Benny Hill was acceptable in the 70s as well, wasn't he? It's, uh, yeah, no, but it, th- th- the first two albums I bought were those compilation albums that were cover versions, and I didn't really realise. Um, but, yeah, the first actual album I bought was David Bowie's um, Ziggy Stardust because, uh, because Starman blew me away. I, I can't imagine it, it. It's quite strange, you know. You, you do still, you know. When I watch some, you know, some of these documentary shows and that, and it, they'll they'll kind of show like, you know, the, the pistols on Bill Grundy and, and things like that, and they show that Bowie performance, and and it's as much Ronson as as much as it is Bowie as well. That's just mm-hmm. just capture, like just grabs you, and the the thought of, you know, seeing that for the first time as it was happening must have just been glorious. It was. It was. I mean, you know, this is. You watch Top of the Pops religiously every week. It was the one. It was the one time of the week when the parents would allow the kids to watch it, if only they could just sit there and go, "Good Lord, do you like that? What's wrong with his hair? What is he wearing? God, it sounds like a cat howling." You know. <laughs> but um, that the whole family would watch it, if only for the parents to just complain about it. But. Just, you know, once in a while, something would come on and, and, and your world would stop and you just go, oh, my God, I've just seen something that has moved me forward in my life. <laughs> okay. For track five, Andy, I'm going to ask you the song that soundtrack your years clubbing. Yeah, you know... Uh... <sighs> Is this designed for people who are younger than me or something? Because my, my clubbing years were really going to rock venues. My club no, was no, Eric's club. It, it, it's, it's that. It's that. It's exactly that. Well, I, it's not I will rock. tell you. Okay. The song that defined because Eric's was my club. Eric's in Liverpool. Every single person in the audience on the Thursday nights, which were the, che- the sort of the local talent nights, which was free for members to get in, every single person in the audience was also in a band. And I will reel them off for you now, because we all start around at the same time. It was Orchestral Manus in the Dark, Echo and the Bunnymen, Teardrop Exposed, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Dead or Alive, The Lightning Seeds, The KLF, Mighty War, um... China Crisis, Flock of Seagulls, and... Fucking uh, hell, that's insane. (laughs) Everybody was in a band, and a guy called Dave Balf, who wasn't successful as a musician, but um, is the guy who... um, lives in a house, a very big house in the country. Yes. Who, 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 who basically forced Blur to make a pop album in their Part Life album and made them as successful as they So he, he was always the one who had a vision that was beyond the music. We always knew he was going to become an executive. So they are just some of the people who were in Eric's. And literally, I mean... You could watch people standing there watching. There would only be you know, 40 people there watching on a Thursday night. It was terrifying to play to those people because, you know, you knew they were, they were all leaning nonchalantly against the pillar. Nobody would come further than the pillar. So there was, <laughs> between the stage and the pillars, there was about 25 feet. Nobody would be uncool enough to come up to the front of the stage. And you could see them all whispering to each other. And you knew exactly what they were saying. They were saying, well, they're all right, like, but they're shit compared to us. <laughs> Are you saying that because on every other night of the week you was there doing that as well? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, people talk about the the, the, the cavern generation, mm. but you know, sixteen years later, the Eric's generation 
I mean, that 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 I reeled off a catalogue there of some seriously. They weren't famous at the time. Yeah. But all all of those bands were all global. <laughs> yeah, that's. I'm I'm fascinated by um, that era of clubbing. Um, I I run a venue, Andy, um, called the Pink Toothbrush, and it was called Crocs before it was called Pink Toothbrush. Uh, and Crocs was the the, the, the kind of the, the Basildon venue where um, Depeche Mode kind of was the in-house band, and Culture Club mm-hmm. come out and played their first show there. And it was very very kind of it was I guess Essex's mm-hmm. Eric's. You know, it was far, yeah. far enough away from like the Blitz and stuff like that, and it was, yeah. So that kind of era of okay. uh, of, of clubbing fascinates me, and and the, the fact that the, the abundance of bands that you just rattled off there that would. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a beautiful story then that will tie into your own personal memory. The song that really re- makes me remember playing at Eric's was in the summer of '78. Paul and I were there. Don't know who we were watching. And the DJ, Norman Killen, played a track. And we looked at each other and went, what the hell is that? And I went over to Norman and said, what is it? What is that? And I went back to Paul and said, okay, Paul, this changes everything. It's an English band. They've made their own record. It's on Mute Records, and it's by a band called The Normal, and it's called Warm Leatherette. And we just went, right, somebody's already been listening to what we're into and they've made a record. We have to do a gig. And it was listening to Warm Leatherette in Eric's that made us then go and knock on the door and say, right, Andy and Paul, we used to be in a band called The Id. We played here last month. Can we do a gig with just the two of us doing our electronic songs? And we thought they'd say, get lost. And they said, yeah, sure. Um, What are you called? We went, oh, we haven't actually got a name. We thought you'd you'd tell us to get lost. We'll get back to you on that. So that's when we created (laughs) Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. So we we do one gig, and then amazingly, we're playing with a comedian called John Dowie. And the guys at Eric said, hey, that was interesting. Do you want to do another gig? We went, oh, yeah, we'll do another one. Um, So we went to a place in Manchester, the, the, the Russell Club in Hume, which for that night was called The Factory. And we met Tony Wilson and we cheekily sent him a cassette and his wife fished it out of a shopping bag of the reject cassettes in the car and put it on and said, oh, this is, this is all a true story. Oh, this is amazing. how you make it in the music. <laughs> Lindsay Reed picked this one out and went, oh, what's this, love? And he said, oh, they came to the club last week. Rubbish didn't like it. Two heads. <laughs> thing in electric music and she put it on and said, that's a hit she should you should sign so apparently he very patronizingly patted her on the thigh and went all right love i'll sign it for you and that was and, electricity uh, yeah so we released electricity on factory and next uh, and then so and you know we'd done our first gig in october electricity comes out in april 79 and apparently um this kid called vince told us that he was listening to it in a club in Basildon. And he said to his mates, he said, do you know what? We need to fuck off the guitars and do this. This is what we should do. And of course it was Vince Clark. And they went and signed to Mute Records that Daniel Miller had created to release Warm Leatherette. How's that for a circle? Perfect. That's making me smile. Huge smiles, mate. Lovely. What a glorious, what a glorious towel. Um, okay. For, um, for track six, a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Okay, well, I grew up in Cheshire, but I'm now in Merseyside, so that allows me a much broader opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, we got annexed into Greater Merseyside in the 70s. So that allows me all of my friends and compatriots, I would have to say, and this is an unusual one, and people are going to really go, really? I like the bunny men. I like the teardrops. I love a lot of what other people have done. But the band that used to get scoffed at, the, I mean, we were outsiders because we looked like hippies at Eric's, but the band that everybody used to take the mickey out of were the hairdressers who used to rehearse around the corner in Whitechapel above the hairdressing salon because it was owned by Mike Score. And everybody used to take the mickey out of them and they were called Flock of Turkeys by everybody else. But Lo and behold, two years later, of all the bands from Liverpool, they had the first massive hits in America. And I actually really, my guilty secret is that I love the song, If I Had a Photograph of You, Something to Remind Me. And it has got the biggest, dirtiest, most compressed snare drum you ever heard. which is real proper 80s snare drum. It's a guilty secret. Don't tell anyone. It's a great song. <laughs> I think that's like an absolute pop gem. And like that was the one that um, when, when me and my mates would walk into Tan and, uh, and they'd be like, um, we're going to like Tandy because they had some sort of Casio keyboards and occasionally want to be plugged in and you could play it. We couldn't afford them, but, uh, but I could always play Wishing. Because <laughs> it was mm-hmm. just three notes, yeah, and it was da, like, da, 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 da. <laughs> so I'd go in and, and and literally just play wishing on on a, on a little mm-hmm. sort of cheap keyboard, and <clears throat> I think that's a wonderful record. It's beautiful, isn't it? Well, you know that they they really. Um... Yeah, they they were they were outsiders at Eric's. We were outsiders because we didn't look very punk or weird or arty. We 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 you know I had an afro and Paul had kind of long. Paul looked like Roger Hodgson out of Supertramp, actually wore, <laughs> wore big flared white loons and had a greasy long hair. But yeah, we 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 really didn't look like we were contenders at all. But um, yeah, flock of seagulls massive 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 songs produced by mike howlett who produced our first couple of albums oh really yeah so um that 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 is my guilty secret the my favorite song from my home well what's what's quite weird is that the fact that obviously they had relative success in the uk but but they were really successful in the states weren't they yeah, I mean, I don't know how they did it. Um, I'm assuming that they got Mike Howlett in to produce because he produced our first few singles, Messages in Ola Gay and Souvenir. So they went, right, okay, Electro Band from Liverpool, let's get the same producer. <laughs> you know. um, I'm trying to think when, when it was a hit, but it, it was a couple of years after us. But, but you know, we, we couldn't get arrested in America. I mean, we signed to Virgin Records. They didn't have a label in America, so they signed us to... Oh, they signed us to Epic. They they gave like a bag full of artists. I think they gave it was like three for one. They go, you you can have well, customers in the dark, Japan and XTC. Here you go. There's a grab bag of three artists, like a lucky dip. And and Epic really didn't know what to do with us. I mean, yeah, they have Michael Jackson anyway, they're making a fortune out of them. Mm. So we were just we couldn't get arrested in America until we changed labels in '84. So obviously the label in the label in America who believed in Flock of Seagulls and got them radio promotion and none of us in liverpool could believe that the hairdressers had a massive hit in america we were like how oh, that, that happened wow but great tunes great tunes great hair 
Yeah, it was then. I don't think Mike's got any left now, no. but he did have amazing hair, yeah. <laughs> okay, so last track. Um, Andy, I'm going to ask you um, for a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Mm. Okay. <sighs> this, again, will seem quite counterintuitive, but if you remember the delicate, emotional, easily moved Tears Boy from who bought Nielsen's single. <laughs> um, when we used to play in Canada, we had a guy called Bob Anselm, who was our record label guy. Lovely. And he always used to give me suggestions of things he thought I might like. And he suggested that I might like an album by Kate and Anna McGarrigal. And I was like, what are they? He said, well, they're Canadian folk musicians. I went, really? <laughs> Am I really going to like that? Um... But he was right because the songs on there are beautiful. And even though it was in a, a musical style that was completely different to us, there was so many songs on there just move me because the, the two voices are great. But the one song I'm going to pick is sung by one of them. It's literally acoustic guitar and her voice. And it's Anna McGarrigal, and she's singing a song about her husband leaving her for another woman after she'd already had her daughter and her son. She literally got left holding the baby. Her daughter was Martha, and her son was Rufus. Wow. And it was Loudon Wainwright was leaving her, and she wrote this song called Go Leave. And at the end of it, when she plays that last guitar note, you're sure you can hear the tears dropping onto the strings. It is the most simple moving song ever. I don't think anybody's ever explained that, that question quite so well. That's if if you're not going to go and listen to that now, I don't know what's wrong with you because that sounds absolutely beautiful. Um, Andy, what we do, we, we, we put a Spotify playlist together to accompany this uh, podcast. So people can go and listen to, um, all of the tracks that we've, we've spoken about today, and and trying to remain positive and, and and seeing that there's you know brighter times ahead as we you know try and find our way out of this this situation we've been in this year. Um, what are you looking forward to personally, and what have you got coming up professionally? Um, do you know what? Because I've been in this band for over two-thirds of my life now. The two things are rather intertwined. <laughs> um, so I will probably actually answer it in one, one, which is I am really looking forward to getting back out on the road and playing to real-life human beings in the same space that I'm in at that moment in time because you cannot recreate that. You know, I, online and distance gigs – that's not my new normal. I don't want that to ever be normal. Um, so we have just announced, actually, um, next year just happens to be the 40th anniversary of the album Architecture and Morality with the two Joan of Arcs and Souvenir sing-along. And so we are going to take the opportunity to celebrate it. Hopefully, COVID will be all be gone because it'll be this time next year. Uh, late, late autumn next year, we're out on the road, major UK tour, doing the entirety of architecture and morality. And then, as I used to say, because we did get back together in 2007 and we played all of architecture and morality. And then after that, I'd say, 
And now we're going to play another 14 hit singles because we can. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we'll be doing next year. And I can't wait. Glorious. Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you very much for giving up your time today. Thank you. I'm sorry I had to turn my camera off, but I think we got a better sound that way. So, listen, great. I mean, your questions here were great and made me think, but obviously the other ones you wove in between them were were, were even more interesting. And it was a good. No, this was the framework upon which you you hung the interview, and I, I've enjoyed it immensely. So, thank you very much indeed. Oh, wonderful! Thank you so much, mate. There you go. Didn't want it to end. <laughs> It was um, it was quite strange because we switched the camera off um, because it was interfering with Andy's um, sort of signal, so the, the, the quality of the audio was kind of getting a bit sort of jittery. So um, so Andy said, "Look, you know, I'm going to turn the camera off," and and it, it enabled us to get that nice audio. And sometimes I find it re- really strange. You know, it was only the the thing the second time I've ever sort of done this podcast where I'm you know unable to see the the person I'm speaking to. Um, and it made no difference. Um, I just thought Andy was so engaging. I thought his answers were so insightful uh, and concise and, and warm and interesting. And, yeah, I, I kind of finished the episode and was, was just, yeah, just absolutely buzzing for, for that one. And I hope you've got uh, the same amount of, of enjoyment out of listening as I did um, talking to to Andy, um, as mentioned at the beginning, if you did um, enjoy this and you'd like to listen to other episodes, please go and have a rummage because there's about 180 episodes now um, with with so many amazing creative people, and uh, and if you have a little look around in the archive, you'll find plenty of people whose stories I'm sure you'd be like, oh, I'd love to hear what what uh, you know shaped their their life and what soundtrack their creative journey um okay um you can find out about everything you need to know about this podcast at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com and i'll be back next week thanks once more to andy thank you to you lot for listening and uh take care and i'll see you next time thank you bye bye it's off the beat and track podcast on the distraction pieces network with me stew with him. Hey,